So let us begin anyways. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today as we always do and always should. Anytime we start praying for any reason, whether it be just merely devotion or anything else, we should always kind of put ourselves in the presence of Christ. So we thank you, Lord, dear God, for bringing us together to share the information that we're about to have here. We ask your blessing on everything that we do today. We praise you and thank you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today we're going to be talking about sort of the second half of this period that I call the only authority period, or from the end of the demise or the collapse of the Roman Empire uh, up to the time of the Protestant Reformation, a time of roughly 1,000 years. And we talked about it uh, last uh, week for sort of the first half, and this time today we're going to be talking about the second half. We're going to try to cover a lot of detail, but what I'm trying to get you to see is that even though many of these um, many of these uh, subjects that we'll be talking about today are not of great importance to us as individuals, but they are when you look at it as serious movements against the church and how the church survived all of these uh, confrontations, you might say. And that's the way I would look, like you to look at them. You might say, well, why should I be concerned about some of these things? And that is true. It is not really involved in uh, as movements against the church because the church, as I have tried to say often enough, and will continue to say, is an extension of Jesus Christ himself. If we reject the church, then we are rejecting Christ. So many people are, particularly with the current problems confronting the church, say, well, why should I go to church? Why should I be a member of, of the Catholic Church? And so forth and so on. If you cut yourself off from that, you are cutting yourself off from Christ himself. Just try to think of what your church would be like or your life would be like if you didn't have the church to go to on a, on a weekly basis, if not more often than that. <clears throat> what would your life be like if you had no mass, no confessions, no priest to attend to you on, on your deathbed? So... The point I'm trying to make again and again and again is that try to separate in your mind and your heart the concept of the church as representing Christ himself from some of the people who run it. Now, we've often been told, and it is true, that we, the members of the church, are the church. Well, in one concept, yes, that's true. But the church itself was something started by Christ himself 
And we should not lose sight of that. Yes, we might not like what father so-and-so has done or sister so-and-so has done, uh, not so much recently, but in the past. Uh, or bishop so-and-so has not done this or that as we would like or we feel should be done. I can understand that. I sympathize with you in many ways. Uh, but we have to understand that the church will always exist because it is an extension of Christ himself. And Jesus said that he would be with us until the end of time. And the way he is with us is through the church. All right. I don't want to belabor the point. I'm sure you get it. But I just want to kind of of remind you uh, that this is the case. All right. What I'd like to do is to kind of go through with you on the top part of uh, your handout today. Because it's something that we talked about a little last week. But I want you to kind of understand this in a little more detail than some of the other things that we'll be talking about today. All right. The period of religious and social life between the time of the Roman Empire and the Reformation that I call the, and remember this is only my way of, of uh, addressing this period, the only authority period, was developed in many ways or was developing and in many ways and destroying uh, itself in many ways also. This time period that is often called the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages is a very interesting time, but a tension was building that was becoming an unseen time bomb. What I mean by that is after the Roman Empire sort of disintegrated, it had a number of officials in various widespread regions. Those officials became sort of the rulers of those individual provinces or locations for lack of anyone else being there. So they tried to protect their territory. Just think about it that in the year 500, give or take a little, communication and travel was extremely slow. So for the, for the purpose of getting information from Rome to, say, uh, Spain or England or <clears throat> over into Greece and so forth, it would take weeks and months for that communication of what was happening in Rome to get to these places. And conversely, if there was anything going on in these far off regions, to get back to Rome was nearly impossible. And this was true even up into the 15th and 16th century. There were no fast communication forms of any kind. And so communication was extremely important, but extremely slow. Uh, it hindered 
the growth in many ways. And I'll get to how that was corrected towards the end of this period in a little way. Okay. But the people that were in charge, that is the Roman officials that were in charge in these far off regions, they became sort of the, the rulers or the protectors and later, you know, the governors or whatever of these areas. And then, uh, as time went on, they were starting to fight for control. Uh, that whole area of particularly uh, Eastern Europe, right up through the center, right from Rome all the way north up uh, to the English Channel and even across to some degree. Because most civil authorities had lost their rightful position in civil society due to the loss of power and direction from the Roman Empire, civilization was breaking down. The church trained farmers, uh, wait, I'm sorry. The church had to step in to keep uh, normal life moving forward. Farming was a prime importance. The church trained farmers how to farm more efficiently. The guidance came from the monasteries where the monks supported themselves by farming their own lands. The church set up marketplaces for local farmers to sell or trade their products for other needs. Because the monks also made their own clothing, this became a skill that was also needed by the general public and sewing became a trade that was taught by the monks to the local people to help them provide their basic needs of clothing. Meanwhile, the nobility of various rank and description were struggling among themselves for their rights and recognition of their territories. The Catholic Church also, in a struggle with the Eastern churches for recognition of the papacy to be in Rome, to be the true and only center of the Catholic faith. This struggle between East, centered in Constantinople, and the West in Rome, began with the Emperor Diocletian dividing the empire between these locations for political and cultural differences. We see, I think if you think about it, even today, if you go into... Turkey and some of those uh, areas, you'll see the culture so much different than in the um, western parts of Europe. Uh, and for those reasons, uh, the Roman Empire was split by Diocletian and in this, uh, what, fourth century. <laughs> Excuse me. Although this division had some validity, it also created reasons for the churches to want the same kind of separation, that is, between the East and the West. This subject became a problem that was tossed back and forth between the two locations, Constantinople and Rome, for centuries until in the year 1009, when the separation became permanent, and it is still 
a thorn in the side of the Catholic Church today. The Eastern churches centered still now in Istanbul, uh, which used to be Constantinople, uh, feels that they are equal to the church in Rome. In the Roman church, the Latin church, which we all belong to here, feels that that is not correct, that anybody that uh, departed or does not recognize Rome as the center of Catholic authority has cut itself off. That's something that we uh, should be aware of, but not let it bother us because it really doesn't affect us as individuals. Okay. In other areas, the Catholic Church did much to aid and further the development of other sciences, such as medicine, astronomy, navigation, and so forth. The convents were places of hospitality uh, for the sick. Our convents were set up beginning in the third and fourth century, uh, and the nuns had to support themselves by doing their own farming, their sewing, and so forth and so on. But as the need arose, uh, they began to take in uh, the sick and the poor and so forth and so on. Uh, and so orphanages and hospitals began uh, by the nuns. And, of course, many of our nuns, uh, many of our hospital organizations and uh, orphanages are still run by the nuns. In, a, in astronomy, the church was very instrumental in developing better understanding of astronomy and meteorology, and it still maintains a science lab in the Vatican devoted to this science. Did any of you know that? Yeah, okay. Remember the Galileo affair here? Yeah. Of course, that was corrected five to hundred years later but uh, too late for Galileo. Okay. All right. But there are a number of other things that I would like to talk about, at least to make you aware of what they were, but all of them had their effect against the church, and yet the church has survived. Okay. The Papal States. You've probably heard of the phrase, the Papal States, but you understand what these were and what, or what they were, they no longer exist. But the papacy itself, although it has been centered in Rome since the time of Peter and Paul, it has had its share of uh, problems and struggles, not only spiritual, but uh, physical, geographical, and virtually every other way. When the various uh, people that originally were appointed uh, to govern certain areas by the Roman Empire uh, fell apart, and they began to claim their, these territories as their own, the church had certain territories that were kind of left unguarded, uh, and these were then uh, put under the care and the jurisdiction of the church itself. In the year 
729, well, actually, even, even before that, but in the year 729, Pippin the Younger, the son of uh, Charlemagne, gave the church certain territories in Italy, or what is now Italy. You know, Italy was never a country in the form as it is now until the 19th century. It was cover, governed and controlled and pulled apart by all of the other surrounding uh, countries of Europe. And much of that was true for other countries. But Italy did not become a unified uh, country until the 19th century. So the Papal States were actual lands owned by the church itself in central Italy. These were a bone of contention for many, many years. And I'm going to skip, you know, all of the, the minute details. <clears throat> but in the 17th and 18th century, they were by a prized possession by the uh, French and the Germans who were kind of pulling Italy apart. Napoleon and his son and brother uh, built magnificent palaces in Italy. In fact, Napoleon's brother built one of the most magnificent palaces in the, the little town of Caserta, uh, which I have been to many times because I live right near, near it in the neighboring village. Um, and that's still existing uh, today as a museum. So what had happened was during the uh, forget the time period off hand. Uh, well, I'm going to skip ahead, anyways. Around the 18th century, it was finally decided that the Pope had to give up these lands, and the Pope was glad to do it. Uh, because it was not something that the church wanted to be involved in as a temporal ruler or ruler over individuals in the way that they had been out of necessity for so long. Uh, but it wasn't until 1929 when Pope Pius IX and Mussolini finally came to an agreement that the Vatican and its immediate surrounding uh, buildings would become an independent state, uh, subject, uh, totally subject uh, to itself and free from any other outside uh, interference, including Rome or any other Italian uh, governance. And so, it finally became a separate state. So that Vatican state is the smallest country in the world. Oh, yes, yes. Way back in the first century, yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the same kind of thing has happened more recently. And you have a church in Carmichael called St. Michael's that calls itself 
the Catholic Church under the Society of St. Pius X, I believe. That is not a recognized Catholic Church. Uh, even though when you walk in, you would never know the difference, uh, but it has cut itself off from Rome and will not accept the Pope or many of the changes due to Vatican or that came out of Vatican II. All right. So, please, if somebody... Yes, sir? There are Eastern rites that recognize... Yes, yes. There are five uh, rites called, yes, Eastern rites that are within uh, the uh, Catholic Church of Rome and subject to Rome. You have a Byzantine rite and an Armenian rite and a few others I forget offhand. Okay. Um, but you have to be very careful in recognizing who is who. Okay. Yes. All right. You've probably all heard of the Holy Roman Empire. Well, it was anything but holy. <laughs> all right. It was a series of relationships between the church and civil governments uh, extending up again from Rome up through the western, I'm mean, sorry, the eastern part uh, of Europe. And for a while it came under various different countries. But finally, in the year 800 AD, the Pope crowned Charlemagne as the king of this region. And later, Charlemagne was the one that tacked on the word holy. All right. It is not in any way, shape, or form related to the Roman Empire that sort of fell apart. Uh, back in the latter part of the 6th century, or 5th century. Yeah. It is a simply a... a <clears throat> it says uh, here, on December the 25th, Leo, uh, Pope Leo XIII crowned the Frankish king Charlemagne as emperor, receiving the title in Western Europe more than three centuries after the fall of the Roman Empire. This title continued in the Carolingian family until the year 888. And from that time uh, through the next 11 years or so, it was contested by the rulers of Italy in a series of civil wars. Civil wars, now, until the death of the last Italian claimant uh, in 1920, I mean, in the year 924, it was finally dissolved uh, much later, and I forget the year. Anyways, it's not that important, but it was something that was constantly working against the Catholic Church, but the Church prevailed. <laughs> Not only do we have all of these little problems here, but we have a number of people within the church who tried to make changes 
to the basic beliefs and formalities of the church. And every time it came to a vote or whatever, the conservative side always won out. You can see the hand of God saying no to a lot of the things that were proposed. And we still have some of that today. There are a number of cardinals and bishops who want to do away with many of the rules. There are just as many on the other side who want to make them more strict. A very interesting time period within this last 500 years that we are talking about, the year 1000 to 1500, uh, are the Crusades. The Crusades began around the end of the 11th, 10, 11th century, 1095. They were originally begun by the Pope to try to reclaim the Holy Land from the Muslims. Remember the Muslims we talked about briefly last week uh, began in the 7th century AD and exploded throughout the Mediterranean area and primarily through North Africa. But they extended themselves uh, over to claim all of what is uh, known as Israel today. The Crusades were uh, begun by the church to try to reclaim the Holy Land for the church. To make a long story short, they were not successful. There were seven crusades over a period of 200 years. Many of them got into major excesses, ex, yeah, excess, successes, no, excesses, excuse me, excesses, uh, caused by selfishness and pride and, um, you know, just the joys of being in a uh, organization. Well, if any of you have been in the military, you know that a lot of camaraderie uh, and gusto can build up uh, when you're going into a battle or when you're going to take on some very important um, mission of some kind. And sometimes uh, the enthusiasm can get a little bit uh, out of hand and do things that uh, were not expected or not accepted. All right. A number of those things happened during this time period. Uh, it, the Crusades were disasters as far as their original intent was concerned, but there were some good sides to it also. Uh, it developed a way of communicating because most of the people that were involved in the Crusades came from Central and Western Europe. And as they would go through various areas of North Africa and back up uh, around the Mediterranean into the uh, Sinai Peninsula and into Israel and so forth, 
they would take communications and they would take a lot of their um, Western Europe culture into those areas. And you had a number of businesses that would grow up just to support the crusaders and their time periods. Remember, there was no ice, there was no electricity. Uh, they had to eat off of the uh, food that was provided by the local people. Uh, the local doctors had to take care of them. Uh, they had to buy provisions of other kinds from the local people. So those created some positive things, but for the most part, the Crusades were a disaster. Right. Um, the last of the Catholic uh, outpost Crusades ended in the year 1291. All right. So you have roughly 200 years uh, of Crusades that accomplished very little of their original intent, but there were other good things that developed within them. The word crusade what didn't really exist uh, until this particular time, but it has now taken on a meaning that far exceeds the original intent. Anytime uh, a movement of any kind is taken up uh, that has some difficulties attached to it in one way or the other is often called a crusade. Uh, but those are not the same as what we're talking about here, the seven crusades. Now, there was even an eighth one that had nothing to do with the... Um, the attack or, or the trying to recover lands from the Muslims. It was, I forgot the, num the name of the Pope, but established uh, an Eighth Crusade to try to route the Albigensian heresy uh, from the Spanish area and all around the Mediterranean area. Uh, but that's another... Uh, Subject. Okay. Another uh, area of time period within this 500 years is called the Avignon Papacy. Avignon being a very important city in southern France became the center of the papacy because <clears throat> the first pope during that particular time and there were seven of them in a period of uh, about 70 years. Uh, the papacy began in uh, this, this split. It is often called uh, the Western Schism, whereas the one between Constantinople and Rome is often referred to as the Eastern Schism. Right? Uh, the Western Schism began in the year 1309. And it came about by one of the popes being elected from France, the first pope outside of the Romans that became a pope. And 
the Frankish king at that particular time was extremely strong and was able to convince the Pope to move to Avignon outside of, you know, leaving Rome. And that became a bona contention between the Romans, again, and France. And it became a real problem. But nevertheless, over a period of uh, 68 years, there were seven popes. All of them were French popes until the problem became uh, extremely difficult and trying, etc., etc. And finally, you had a beautiful Carmelite nun, St. Catherine of Siena, uh, that prevailed upon uh, the whole idea of moving the papacy back to Rome. And she was successful. I won't go into all the details, but if you want to read the life of St. Catherine of Siena, it's in there, and it's uh, rather interesting, but we don't have the time to get into all of that today. Uh, Urban is seventh, I think it is. Yeah, there. I'm not certain of that one. Clement the fifth was the first one. Yeah. Um, but the Avignon papacy was very important, but it was another way of showing the strength of the church aside from the people who run it. The Avignon popes did not try to change the faith in any way, uh, but they changed the direction. Uh, they changed a lot of the atmosphere uh, from Italian uh, to French. And uh, it was decided that this was wrong, just as the Eastern, I mean, just as the, the Eastern uh, schism was wrong when they left Rome for Constantinople. Another very serious thing that happened during this time period was the plague. Here again, the church came to the rescue of many people because they had already started taking care of the sick uh, and the poor through orphanages and hospitals. And uh, they stepped in and did a great deal. The plague lasted a total of seven years from 1346 to 1353. It was something that was totally unknown at that particular time. And it took a number of years uh, before they could finally figure out what the problem was. In the meantime, nearly 25 to 30 percent of the entire population of Europe died because of the Pope, of the <laughs> Excuse me, 
because of the plague. (laughs) Now, do you know what caused the plague in the first place? Yes. Yeah. The overrun of contaminated rats and their left behinds getting into the food system of the people. Yeah. And so that was a major problem, but the church came to the rescue as best it could. The Black Death or the plague was very difficult for everybody concerned. All right. Another one of my most enjoyable uh, subjects that happened during this time period uh, was the invention of the printing press and the printing of the Bible, both by Johannes Gutenberg. I have one of my favorite books here I just want to show you here called Gutenberg's Apprentice. Now, this is a historical novel, all right? All, not all the details are history, but the basic idea is history, and the people in here are real people who existed at this particular time. Okay. Anyone wants to take a look at this later, if you want to read a really very entertaining an educational book, too. Uh, I would recommend that highly. Okay. <clears throat> he was born around the year 1400. There is no records to indicate anything more specific than that. Around the year 1400. Okay. He was born from a very wealthy family. Uh, who uh, had all kinds of businesses but he wanted to do things his way, okay? Not unlike children today. Uh, Mother, I want to do it my own way, okay? There is not a lot of history of his early life, uh, but the book itself goes into some of what it is, and it's mostly speculation, but it makes it rather interesting. Anyways, one of the main problems that Gutenberg had in trying to promote his movable type press, the printing press, was that at that same time, writing was very limited to very few people. Most people, the majority of the population, could neither read nor write. And that was because of the shortage of schools. Now, there again, the church stepped in to begin schools. Most of the monasteries uh, started training uh, people from the outside, but schools and reading and writing were still limited to primarily the wealthy. But the printing press, once it got started, was very instrumental in uh, supplying printed materials rather quickly. The problem was that uh, there was a whole industry 
called scribes. And the church tried to protect this because they felt that um, by putting the scribes out of business, they would lose control. Control of a number of things that came out of Rome or various uh, bishop, uh, bishop's offices, etc., etc. And so when Gutenberg tried to get the church to help him out and support him, they declined because they didn't, they thought this was just a temporary thing that it would go out of uh, existence and people would lose interest and the scribes would retain their jobs. Well, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, the whole uh, book there goes into detail as how Gutenberg had to print his first Bible in secret and he keep all of his employees uh, to pledge to secrecy so that he could produce this Bible and then present it uh, to the appropriate people for acceptance later. It all worked out that way, uh, but the book talks about uh, the number of unusual things that he had to go through uh, to keep his printing press and some of its capabilities separate and secret until it was all completed. Uh, part of the problem was that the church also felt that by his producing uh, the printed Bible on his own, that he would not do it accurately and correctly and so forth and so on. Uh, that did not happen. Um, but the whole idea of the printing press then developed multiple copies of everything within a very short period of time. Uh, all kinds of people found reasons to use the printing press and its capabilities uh, primarily for propaganda, uh, for getting out its own ideas, for doing a lot of things, good, and bad, and uh, ugly in some cases. Uh, but it was a major step forward in progress. It was the forerunner of the Industrial Revolution that took place uh, about a century later. So I would highly recommend, if you are interested in a subject to pursue, uh, this is one of them. And that book, again, the story is historical novel. In other words, not all of the details are accurate as far as history is concerned because there weren't anything, uh, wasn't anything available to back it up. The Bible he printed was in German? Yes. Most of the problems of this whole period came out of Germany, or what is now Germany today. It wasn't always called Germany at the time. Yes. Uh, the first of the New Testament was put together by St. Jerome, yes. The writings, of course, came from much earlier time period, but he was the one that first 
assembled them and called them uh, the New Testament. Okay, the Vulgate. The Vulgate, yes. And the Vulgate comes from the, the same basic word for our word of vulgar. You know why? Because it was the common language of the people and it was looked down upon by the educated people who spoke Greek for centuries. All right? But gradually, Latin became the official language of the church in the 5th century, century AD, and it is still the official language of the Catholic Church, the Roman Church. Yes? No, I don't think that that was, Mike asked was, was St. Jerome's purpose in trying to bring the Bible to the average person. And I don't think so, because most of the people couldn't read. Yeah, they right? understand it. Well, much less understand it, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, the whole idea of bringing it together was to have something that was equal to the Old Testament, so that we would have something a little bit more. You see, as I've said all along, the church was not started by Christ giving the apostles everything in a big book or a blueprint. It had to grow little by little. <coughs> and it had to grow from the people who then asked God for inspirations. So it was a joint effort. And that's what God wanted, the church to be a joint effort, not something that was given to them already completed, but something that they developed. Jim? I mean, his point's kind of taken a little bit, though, to Gutenberg Press. You said there's about 100 years difference between the printing press and, and the Reformation. Yes. So now you've got 100 years of people... The people that could read started to expand because there was more accessible material. Yes. And of course, they're reading now they're reading the Bible, which before they never had the ability to. Yes. So by the time the Reformation, it's like, well, why do you have to listen to those people at Rome? You can figure it out if you can read. Well, you got a good point because that's exactly what was happening in this time period. After a thousand years, people began to be more educated. And that was brought about by the monasteries and the convents. And so as people became more educated, they began to see why should we listen to the church? Why can't we do things on our own? And so, as I say, if you turn this page over to next week's um, <coughs> next week's lesson, Let's just look, just read this and, and, you know, tie right into what Jim has just said. The event we're talking about that precipitated the Protestant Reformation was Martin Luther's pinning his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany. 
Now that to the, today sounds like, whoa, a big no-no. But it wasn't in that case. The cathedral door was used like the local bulletin board. So that wasn't unusual in itself. What was unusual was that he did something that was a big no-no against the church. He recognized that there were a number of excesses and misuses of church privilege and church hierarchy uh, that needed correction. And so, as I say here, it was like a balloon filled with confetti that was blown to its ultimate and then burst. And everything went all over the place. So that's what Jim here is referring to, that there was this pressure, <coughs> excuse me, there was this pressure that was building up to the point of an explosion. But I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of us in getting into the discussion um, on the Reformation until next week. One of the things that is a real thorn in the side of the Catholic Church, again, started by good people with good intentions, but it got way out of hand, as the Reformation did. It was started by somebody with a good intent. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it got out of his hands and became a major, major uh, movement against the Roman Catholic Church. This one is the Spanish Inquisition. You've all heard about it. But do we really know anything about it? The Spanish Inquisition was begun by the church, by the pope, to squelch a number of heresies in Spain. Unfortunately, like many other things, it got out of hand. And the power that was given to the nobility of Spain and then handed down to lesser people within that area, the Spanish Inquisition got way out of hand and totally misleading. Uh, it was originally intended to squelch both Jews and Islams that were taking over all forms of civil and religious life in southern Spain. Islam had increased to the point of uh, developing major spearheads in Spain. One of the most interesting of examples that are still in existence today is the Alhambra uh, in southern Spain in Andalusia. I think it's in uh, Granada. Yeah, I've been there, but it's been a number of years since then. Um, 
but it's a, it was a major fortress. It is now just a museum. Um, but again, very interesting. The Spanish Inquisition, as I said, lasted for over 400 years, but in much lesser degrees. They, they first, uh, they first started in the year 1478, but it didn't officially end until the year 1834. So, like 350 years, or give or take a little. Okay. It is, uh, was established to uh, suppress and combat heresies in Spain, both by Muslims and Jews. Um, but it, again, got out of hand. I think that the church finally recognized that and along with a number of other things, tried to uh, put it down, but it was something that constantly continued to raise its head. Another thorn in the side of the church was what is called the Renaissance, or the Renaissance papacy. It began, began uh late in the 15th century. And it was a way of the church developing a number of cathedrals and museums and uh, trying to glorify a number of buildings. And of course, to pay for that, they had to tax the local people. And that became part of this uh, pressure that was building that we had talked about a little later, uh, earlier here. Uh, and it was part of the pressure that was put on and eventually uh, resulted in the Protestant Reformation. Okay. But a number of popes uh, got into excesses in building a number of uh, cathedrals. Have, if any of you have been to Rome, you might wonder why is there a magnificent church in this particular street and block and down another block and a half is another magnificent church and street. All right. Well, keep in mind, not all of those were built by the Catholic Church. Over a period of time during the Renaissance period, it was fashionable for fam wealthy families to have churches built totally from their own pocket, but in their particular way. So if they wanted to honor a particular uh, saint, they would build a church. And then what would happen, of course, uh, after the original donating family died, you know, it would go to the Catholic Church who had to then support it, keep it up, or tear it down. And you still have, because of the beauty of, of many of these buildings, uh, you still have a number of them that have virtually no uh, attendees because all you have is tourists that go in there. Uh, Why did they support all those churches? Well, that's a big problem. 
a very expensive problem. Uh, but to tear them down, you know, if you tore down uh, half of those churches that aren't really being used as uh, neighborhood parish churches, uh, you would lose a lot of tourists as well. So the government has stepped in in many ways to help support a lot of those churches. Yeah, but that's not a good idea for the government to tell you how to write your religion, is it? Well, that's always been a bone of contention for centuries, yes. The government versus the church. You've had this going on forever. Goodbye, Edla. I, she knows uh, that I did that on purpose just to tease her. Yeah. I, had, I, had, I had breakfast, well, as part of the small group of people with her last Sunday, and we brought that subject up. She said she'd have to leave early, and I said, well, I'll let people know that you're leaving early. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Yes. No. That was cause of the Moors to leave. Okay. So the Moors were there for a long time. Yes. So the position was kind of irrational at times. Yes. To get rid of the Moors. Yes. And and they did pretty much. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, was, it, was the church a big, I mean, because you can almost, it's really hard to find anything about the Moors still left in Spain. They did a pretty good job of eradicating those. Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but even only a few of those. Yeah, because, I mean, there's not much That's right. There's not much left. Yeah, the Alhambra is probably the most significant one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are little bits and pieces, but not much. Mm -hmm. No. Okay. The whole idea, again, is you've had wave after wave after wave of things pushing against the church, including people within the church wanting their particular way. But the church has prevailed over and over and over again. And some people, I should say some guys, because... You know, there are no women that really have a voice in the church. Uh, are still doing that, that kind of thing. Are still working against what the church should be doing and what the church is really all about. Yes, Dick? There was some very Well, there were, but there isn't really today. Yeah. But no. That, and that's a point that is well made. During this same time period, there have been a number of great saints come along who have recognized the wrongs and the excesses of the church and have tried to make uh, reparation or corrections or whatever. Uh, one of them that comes to mind is St. Teresa of Avila. During her time period, <clears throat> the Carmelite order had fallen into 
excesses. And we're doing a number of things that they shouldn't be doing. The Carmelite order is an order of what the mendicant uh, priests and nuns. Mendicant meaning that they support themselves by begging or by growing their own uh, in farmlands. All right. But when Teresa of Avila first entered the convent, she was shocked to find that some of the nuns had their own servants. Uh, and there were a number of things that were going on that she just couldn't really accept or get used to. So she prayed for divine guidance because she was brought into a, a situation that uh, almost caused her to join the, the wrongs that were being done. And so she prayed for divine guidance and eventually through many apparitions and miracles, etc., etc., she was able to make significant changes not only in the Carmelite order of nuns but also in the Carmelite order of priests through the help of St. John of the Cross. All of these uh, were significant aids to the church and they were God's ways of planting individuals here and there to help maintain the church as it should be rather than what a lot of people wanted it to be. St. Ignatius of Loyola is another individual that came along in this time period, establishing with the help of a number of his close friends, the Jesuit order. And the Jesuit order has <clears throat> risen to the top only to be kicked out from underneath and suppressed by the church over and over by the people of the church, not the church itself, uh, but it has survived <clears throat> many trials, uh, many condemnations, and so forth and so on, to the point where our present pope is a former Jesuit. <clears throat> but it goes to show you that uh, in spite of the evil one, the devil, working against the church through its own people, the church has always survived. You have just a large number of people have come along in this particular time period to help maintain law and order and keep the church on an even keel. Any questions? I think I'm running out of steam myself here. Um, well, yes, we did. We covered a lot, and yet many of those things are, are not so important to us today as far as our relationship with the church. But knowing how we got there is important. Knowing that the church will survive the present uh, problems that it is faced with because God is behind us. Uh, that will never change. Uh, but the thing is, we have to 
pray for the church to continue its strength and survive. Are we one of the biggest churches? We are. Catholic Church is the largest organization in the world. That's what I think. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, there was, is Mary Simchek here today? No. Uh, one of our members here sent me a, an article by Father uh, Bishop Robert Barron, who, uh, and if you are interested enough, I'll make a copy of it and provide it to all of you for next week. But it's uh, along the same lines that we got to be very careful when we talk about the church versus the people who run it. Keep in mind that the church is an extension of God and if we fall behind and leave it, we are leaving Christ himself. So what we want, really want to do is to pray that the people who are in charge or supposed to be in charge and who run it finally wake up and see the importance of running a holy life leading a holy life themselves so that they, in turn, can lead others to a holy life. Because, as I've said on that long road or long line that I drew here in the first meeting, this is the lifeline of all. We are born here in the middle and up here is heaven down here is hell okay now forget about the fire and the pitchforks and the guy with the red union suit and all of that stuff that's not important alright but the fact that is if if we die in this downhill slope. The only place we can go is here. So our efforts should be directed towards going up here. There is no alternative. When you stop and think about that, there is no alternative. When you die, you see the face of God. And that is such a powerful moment that if you are turned away from heaven and never see that face again, the anxiety that and the condemnation that you bring on yourself will be so great that that will be the fire. Because remember, internal anguish can build up to a point of severe fire within you. And hell, hell and heaven are not a place, a physical place like Roseville. No. It's a state of being, a, a spiritual state of being. And if you get into this position, you'll never get out. It is final. Now, here, there might be a detachment temporarily for purgatory. Okay? But eventually, 
you know that you'll get there. There is no such thing down here. How sad that is in the thought that by doing some of the stupid things that all of us have done over our life, if they are not corrected in our lifetime and are severe enough for God to say, why should I let you in? I don't know you. Then the only place you will end up is down there. Yes, Madge? What these men have done in the church, uh, they've hurt Jesus more than they have themselves, haven't they? Yes. Yeah. But when you hurt yourself to a certain degree, it is final. And that's the sad part about it. A lot of people are not waking up to that point. The other thing that I'd like to point out, <clears throat> I've been told not to say these things because it might scare people. Well, frankly, that's what is needed. And that's all of these natural disasters that are going on. They are part of God's way of saying, hey, look, boys and girls, men and women, wake up. You are ignoring me. Young people today particularly are so caught up with you know, their iPhones and all, all of the modern technology that they feel they don't have time, nor do they need uh, God and the church. And unfortunately, they need it all the more to combat the devil and his movement into society that we have today. These natural disasters are part of God's way and if you look back into the Old Testament, you see that this has happened over and over again, and God has been behind it. You have Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the uh, Assyrian invasion of northern Israel in the 8th century B.C. You have the Babylonian captivity. And this is where societies have all been wiped out because they have ignored the teachings of God that came to them through the prophets and through other important people within uh, Judaism. And we have the same thing today. We are just not listening to God and the church. Yes, ma'am? What's that? I'm sorry. No, no, Jesus would not approve of that, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, that's some things that you and I can't do anything about. But we can pray that that right prevails. Pray for the church and pray that you as an individual do not lose sight of the church. 
she brought up the point that what did Jesus, what would you think Jesus would say about the lifestyle of many of the bishops and cardinals that we've all heard about. Obviously, he would very, he would cry just like he did over Jerusalem because Jerusalem uh, did not accept him. Remember, right in the Gospels, it talks about Jesus condemning three cities, Capernaum, um, offhand, I can't remember the other two. Yeah. Yes, those three, those three cities. Okay. Because even though he worked miracles and preached in them, and did so much good for the people within them, they still ignored him and didn't want him to even be there. So they are no longer in existence, those three. And if you look back at history, any country that has persecuted the church or before the church, Judaism, is no longer a powerful country. <clears throat> Egypt, for one. Egypt is not a powerful country as far as <clears throat> stacking up against all of the others. All right. uh, Syria, or Assyria. In fact, Assyria doesn't even exist any longer. Uh, it was the one that overran uh, the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century. Uh, you have the same problem with the Babylonians. They don't exist as a country any longer. You have Iran and Iraq, which is just as bad, but nevertheless, uh, the Babylonians as a country or as a people do not exist. So any country that has persecuted the church or Judaism is no longer a powerhouse if they still exist. And some of them do not exist any longer. So the church will always prevail. It might be in difficult times and in difficult ways, but it will always prevail. And so we should spend our time uh, praying for the church and that we never lose sight of the church itself. Next week, as I just mentioned before, we'll bring up the subject of the Protestant Reformation, which began uh, in the early part of the 16th century and never really ended because we're still feeling the effects. But it was a major, major change, not only for the church, but for society in general in many different ways. But while you're thinking about it, while you're reading about it, keep in mind, the church was not asleep during this period. Next week we will be talking about the Reformation and its effects on people. The following week we will talk about the Counter-Reformation, which is not an official term. The official term is really the Ecumenical Council of Trent that went on and was in process before Martin Luther did his little thing. Uh, 
but it took, again, because of communication and travel and so forth, it took a number of years after Martin Luther's event uh, to start. And we'll talk about that the following week. So stay with us, folks. Uh, yes, ma'am. I'm sorry? What is the Coptic Church? All right. The Coptic Church is a break off from the Roman Church that wanted to run its own ways. Now, we used to have a church right here in Roseville called St. Mary's Coptic Church or Coptic Catholic Church. The, the word Catholic has been removed, I know, from their title, at least outside. Uh, but it is a Christian denomination, um, very much like Lutherans, yeah. and it is centered in uh, North Africa. That's where most of the Coptic church came from, Ethiopia. Yeah. Any other questions? Uh, Yes, sir. Um, when I was moved to Southern California, I got to know the Norbertine uh, nuns, and I used to be a bulletin every so often. But St. Norbert, you didn't touch on this. They said he was a reformer in the 11th or 12th century. Well, that goes along with some of the other, like St. Teresa of Avila and uh, a number of reformers. They tried, but because he was so early, uh, uh, and then the, the Reformation took over and his particular area, Scandinavia, was uh, dominated by Lutheranism. Uh, he didn't make a lot of headway, but he tried. <clears throat> yeah, and they did a lot of good. Most of the Norbertines are uh, hospital related. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, let us end with a prayer. Name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you bless our efforts and our prayers so that we may never leave the church. We may disagree with many of the people that run it, but I'm sure you do too. So help us then to open our minds and our hearts to you and to what is right. We ask that you guide our every thought, word, and deed, so that we never leave you behind. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In 